Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Legal presumptions, the key to winning or losing a home in foreclosure. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, September 26, 2019. Pardon my voice if it gets weak. I have walking pneumonia. That's really special. For years, I've been talking about and writing about gaps in the chain of title and gaps in the proof. Tonight, I'm going to tell you how to reveal those gaps to the court. Tonight, we'll talk about how to understand and use legal presumptions and inferences to defeat illegal foreclosures. You have to understand them in order to know what you're facing and in order to aim at your target. When you're clear on that, everything else falls into place. The key to persuading the court is logic applied to everyday experience. That's true for every case, no matter what kind it is. And remember that the key in every foreclosure is the money trail. That means who paid for the debt and who now is carrying the debt on their books as a loan receivable, which has not been resold. It is not enough to deny the claims or even assert an affirmative defense that the party claiming the right to foreclose does not exist or that they have no legal claim or that they have not paid value for the debt. And for those people who keep asking, how do I prove that, you are asking the wrong question. The answer is you can't prove it unless they admit it and they'll never admit it. But just as legal inferences and presumptions can be used against you, they can also be used for you and against them. Article 9, Section 203 of the Uniform Commercial Code, adopted in all U.S. jurisdictions and has been the law for centuries, says that a condition precedent In other words, something you have to do first. Condition preceding to filing a foreclosure action or initiating one in a non-judicial state is that the claimant must have paid value for the debt, not merely the note or the mortgage. We all use those terms interchangeably, but and we, we think they all mean the same thing, but they don't. The debt is different from the note, is different from the mortgage. 
What all that means is that before you can legally foreclose, you must have paid for the debt. What you are up against is the very fact that this condition precedent exists gives rise to a legal presumption that the party seeking foreclosure would not have done so if they hadn't complied with the statute, which, as I said, exists in all jurisdictions. There are no exceptions. In most jurisdictions, the state keeps the same numbering scheme. So if you Google, for example, California or New York or Florida statute UCC 9-203, you will find that the statute uh, says what I'm reporting here, plain and simple, no exceptions. It's a very simple statute, and there's no variance to it. So you might ask, well, how do we keep losing? Well, I'm going to show you how. All courts start with the legal presumption that the party seeking foreclosure has paid value for the debt and that all the proof that is needed consists of when there was a default and what are the damages and was the borrower given the required statutory notices. So walking into the courtroom, that's all that's on the judge's mind. He's presuming that the claimant has paid value for the debt or else they wouldn't be in court. That presumption is based on logic. Why would they say that if it wasn't true? Why would they say they had the note if they didn't have it? In most cases, the claimant will actually produce, the lawyers for the claimant, whether it exists or not, will actually produce a document that they call the original note. Why would they have why would they have the note if they didn't pay for it? That's why possession of the note implies and raises the inference that the note is evidence of ownership of the debt by the party claiming to enforce it. And in some states, ownership of the note is sufficient to claim ownership of the mortgage, although there are a lot of differing opinions on whether that holds up to legal analysis. So the deck is stacked against you. Merely arguing against the legal presumptions on the basis that your opposition consists of evil actors is like spitting up wind. It lands right back in your face. But raising an inference that the claimant is not real or that its claim isn't real, or most importantly, that the claimant did not comply with the single most important condition preceding to initiating foreclosure, payment of value for the debt. While there are various doctrines allowing for a promissory note without being the owner of the debt by reason of having paid for it, no such doctrine exists for enforcement of a mortgage or deed of trust. It does not exist. <clears throat> the way they get there is through the use of legal presumptions in which the court presumes that the statute, that there's been compliance with the statute. That reflects longstanding common law and now statutory requirement that only the owner of the debt can bring the foreclosure and that the owner of the debt must be someone who has paid 
value for the debt or else they won't be considered the legal owner of the debt. So you see in case decisions across all 50 states that a transfer of the mortgage without a transfer of the debt is a nullity. So the any instrument of conveyance of the debt without a purchase of it is considered a nullity. The document exists, but the transaction doesn't. And so the document is a fabrication. Public policy contained in, in that state law in all jurisdictions makes it illegal for anyone to foreclose in the name of anyone who has not paid value for the debt. It is that simple. So if the facts come out or are inferred, and we'll get into that in a minute, then having the note is not enough. No court will knowingly approve of the use of a legal presumption when it knows that the actual facts are different from the presumed facts. But until they're convinced that the actual facts are or might be different than the presumed facts, they're going to apply the legal presumptions and the deck will be stacked against you. So this is a program, as, uh, as I explained the last time I was on, September 12th, that uh, is intended to expand your awareness of procedural law, which is the basis for all judgments and orders entered by any court. The rules of procedure and the laws of evidence, presumptions, and inferences are not well understood by most lawyers, frankly, by many judges, much less pro se litigants who have no legal training. But procedure is where the homeowner can win, and procedure is where the homeowner loses. Remember, this program is being recorded, and you can always come back to this recording or any of our other shows by going to blogtalkradio.com and searching for The Neil Garfield Show. Comments and suggestions are hereby solicited. Write to neilfgarfield at hotmail.com. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. And I really want to thank all of you who have stepped up. This has been a major improvement uh, uh, in the last few months. Thanks to that uptick, I'm putting together several seminars. And you'll even find that the radio shows are better structured because I'm able to put more time into it. So neither the blog nor the radio shows are supported by anything other than donations. I'm not selling anything here. I'm giving hope to those who need it and, who, and those who deserve that hope. The seminars cannot occur unless we have substantial donations to offset the cost of creating a presentation of each seminar, seminar such that the cost, cost can be brought within affordable range for homeowners and lawyers. So go to the blog, livinglies.me or livinglies.wordpress.com um, and on the home page, just hit the donate button, pledge whatever you think you can afford, 
If this show has value for you, if our work on the blog and our radio shows without any other payment or other support has value to you, then please chip in. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. It's not just me who's on this mission. It's you, too. So let's start at the beginning. <coughs> First, I have to cough. Okay. Foreclosure has only one purpose under law, and that's it. That purpose is to provide restitution to pay part or all of an unpaid debt. If it doesn't do that, then it isn't a foreclosure. It's something else, and calling it a foreclosure is illegal if it's not a proceeding brought to pay an unpaid debt. And it's not a proceeding brought to pay an unpaid debt if the claimant hasn't paid for the debt. Don't get lost in the weeds. Don't get lost in stacks of paper. Loans are about money. Mortgages are about money. Promissory notes are about money. And foreclosures are always about money. Apart from the paper documents you execute at closing, you still owe the debt if you receive the money. And the party you owe the money to is the party who produced the money for the loan. So even if you do not have the paperwork, you would still owe the money by law. And if there were a deficiency in the paperwork that a party wanted to correct, they would tell the court that they are the real party in interest, that they either loaned um, the money or that they paid for the debt. But that isn't what's happening. Lawyers are coming to court naming fictitious clients in many cases as the claimants at foreclosure, and they're winning in most cases mostly because most homeowners, around 96% of them in foreclosure, simply walk. So that gives the appearance that you can't fight them because they have a 96% win record. Uh, they have, and their win record is actually higher than that. Uh, in the contested case, cases, unless uh, the, the litigant is, is persistent, uh, it will often happen that, th that they will lose precisely because of the issues that I'm discussing on tonight's program. Once a document is filed in public records, either in court or in the land registry, there is a rebuttable legal presumption that the parties named on them actually exist and that the transaction referred to in the document was real. If not challenged, this will become the law of the case even if the presumed facts are completely false. So, yeah, it does work that way. The system is legally required to work that way, or else no document would be considered valid and no title would be clear or marketable. <coughs> because it's the law of the case, you can't get rid of a legal presumption without rebutting it or by raising an inference such that the court refuses to accept the legal presumption and then requires actual proof. And you might be able to bar any attempt at actual proof, as I'll explain in a second. As the opposition, you as homeowner or attorney 
to the homeowner have the right to rebut any legal presumption. The only kind of presumptions that can't be rebutted are conclusive presumptions, and they don't exist in foreclosures. All presumptions and civil actions are rebuttable. Legal presumptions are convenience to expedite court process on matters that are not in dispute or which are obvious because ordinarily the presumed fact and the presumed law actually do apply. They're true. A promissory note and mortgage are generally accepted as being true because why else would the homeowner sign it? That's why they asked, did you sign it? Well, that gives rise to a presumption that the party was right, the amount was right, everything was right. Legal presumptions are therefore subject to two different attacks, only one of which, only one of which is possible where the claims arise uh, from securitization of the debt. What we're talking about here is the debt, not the note, not the mortgage. The debt, because that is the money that was loaned. That is the money that was purchased by a successor. And that is the money that is due from the borrower. If you go into court and you don't acknowledge that to the judge, you're already two strikes down. In order to gain credibility, you need to recite the obvious. The most obvious attack is to actually prove that the claimant has not complied with Article 9, Section 203 of the UCC, which says that as a condition preceding to filing foreclosure, the claimant must have paid value for the debt. Spoiler alert, you are never going to prove that without them admitting it, and they are never going to admit it. The second attack is where I've had all my successes in court, and frankly, where most attorneys have had their successes in court. Either in discovery or at trial, I raise the inference that the presumption does not apply, and therefore the claimant must actually prove the presumed, previously presumed facts without the use of the legal presumptions. This is what keeps lawyers for the banks at, awake at night. They know they can't do that. They know without the legal presumptions, they have no case. In discovery, you file your interrogatories, requests to produce, and requests for admissions, and specifically target all transactions in which money exchange hands as payment for the debt. Your opposition will refuse to answer those questions and come back to court with the same legal presumptions that enabled them to be in court in the first place. Your answer is that the defense narrative is that this is not a party who paid value for the debt. It, it doesn't exist, and that runs to the heart of the contested matter before the, co the court. If they did pay value for the debt, you have to concede that they have a case and they win. If they didn't pay value for the debt, they have to concede that they don't have a case and you win. As permitted by the rules of discovery, you have asked for information that would lead to the discovery of admissible evidence about whether the claimant exists and whether it paid value for the debt. As required by the rules of discovery, the lawyers for the claimant must answer those demands for discovery. But if they don't, 
Nothing comes of it without filing a motion to compel responses. Generally speaking, the court will enter an order requiring them to respond. Any reasonable presentation of what you asked for and why you asked for it uh, is ordinarily successful. But still, nothing comes of it. That's probably why it's ordinarily successful. Unless you do something about it. The legal presumption that the claimant is real and has a real claim because they paid value for the debt still exists even though there's an order telling, commanding them to respond to discovery. It exists because they still have an answer. That stands until you file a motion for sanctions in which you might seek an order of contempt that includes fines, but also an order declaring that the presumption in favor of the claimant has been discarded by the court and that a new inference exists that the claimant is not real and did not, and or did not pay value for the debt. The claimant may purge itself of contempt by giving the proper response to discovery. Now the situation has changed. The inference, the, the presumption that they are a viable claimant and that they paid value for the debt is gone. The inference is now in your favor because they refuse to answer questions about it. The opposition can't respond, and so you will move for renewed sanctions to include a presumption that the claimant is not real or doesn't have a real claim and never paid value for the debt, and that further the claimant is barred from introducing evidence to the contrary because it refused to answer discovery and violated the court order by continuing to withhold the meaningful response. Once again, on that motion, the homeowner typically wins. Not always. There's never a guarantee if you go to court. But if you've gotten to that point where they're thumbing their nose at the court, not just at you, that changes things. None of that will necessarily stop the lawyers from the claimant from filing a motion for summary judgment with affidavits attached, declaring but not proving that the claimant paid value for the debt. This is where a lot of homeowners who think they've won the case lose. They might very well win the motion unless you file your own motion for summary judgment based upon the inference, now irrefutable, that they didn't pay value for the debt and therefore failed to comply with the statutory condition preceding. So the deck is stacked against you, but you can still win one card at a time. Some judges try to skate over the law by assuming that even if the claimant is not the party who paid for the debt, and even if that does not comply with the statute requiring payment for the debt, that as long as the court is convinced that eventually the proceeds of foreclosure will be distributed to the parties who paid for the debt, that's good enough. Your job is to corner the judge who does that and bring those assumptions out in the open. Because 
foreclosure is not available to those who are acting in a representative capacity. Now, remember that when somebody says Bank of New York Mellon is trustee for the so-and-so trust, that the actual claimant is not Bank of New York Mellon. The actual claimant is a trust, supposedly a remake trust, which, by the way, is probably just a fictitious name that was used by the investment bank in order to sell certificates. You can still win using the discovery techniques I've described here by merely targeting previous transactions in which value was paid for the debt. And don't be timid. The fact is there wasn't any transaction in which value was paid for the debt in most instances. Therefore, there is nobody in the background, which a lot of judges think is automatically true, who would be the recipient of a distribution of proceeds in foreclosure. Value was paid, but not for the debt. Investors bought certificates, not the debt. The investment bank used the money to fund the origination or acquisition of loans. But neither the investors nor the investment bank are carrying the debt as a loan receivable, which means they are not expecting payment from the borrower that will offset the debt because they're not carrying the debt. They'll be receiving a distribution of the proceeds of foreclosure, not as anything on the balance sheet, but solely on the income statement, which means they're using foreclosure to generate revenue, which is not allowed. It is illegal. Careful discovery targeting the various parties claiming or have having claimed servicing rights on the loan will reveal that payments received from the borrower were not ever credited against the debt or raise inferences to that effect, same as I've already described. And if the foreclosure succeeds, the proceeds won't be used to pay down the debt because the illusion of the debt is necessary to support the continued existence of the securitization infrastructure that was built on top of that debt. Take away the debt, and at least 12 times that value is erased in the shadow banking market. So they're never going to retire that debt, no matter what happens. Prepayment, foreclosure, short sale, you name it. That debt is not going to be retired. So you can press as hard as you want without being afraid they'll come up with proof against the borrower. They can't and they won't. And just a side note here, the recent announcement of the DITEC sale in bankruptcy is a ruse to edge around the problem that the banks can't really fix, just the ones that I'm talking about in tonight's show. They're manufacturing a sale that they will use as evidence of payment for the debt. But the seller in that supposed sale doesn't own the debt. And I'll remind you also that the whole DITEC thing is basically a ruse because it's gone through several entities uh, 
who are not successors to each other. The name has continued uh, long after it went out of business and long after it, it went through bankruptcy as a uh, subsidiary of uh, uh, GMAC. So that's the story. Learn presumptions, learn inferences, and learn how to use them. Research it on the Internet. And for you lawyers, get, get some information from some seminars that deal with trial practice. And you'll see how I and other lawyers have succeeded where most have failed. Thank you for your attendance, and we'll be back at you next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.